This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Impact, climate and sustainability. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. The headlines are all around us. Extreme weather fueled by climate change is happening in nearly every part of the world. There are record droughts and severe water shortages. Elsewhere, water inundates. Climate change takes pre-existing conditions and supercharges them, making the weather more intense. Warmer temperatures hold more moisture in the atmosphere, so what used to be normal rain can now be destructive extreme rain. Wildfires are now year-round. Species are in decline. This is an alarming moment for the planet. But it also represents a moment of opportunity. A new law allows American consumers to take advantage of tax credits for electric vehicles, solar panels, and farm improvements, all meant to reduce emissions and propel innovation to help solve the biggest problem impacting the entire planet. We're going to take a look at all of this. But we're going to begin at the beach in New York, where this summer here on Long Island, shark sightings have become more common. So I've been surfing for about a little over a decade, probably around 12 years, and You know, we see sharks almost every time we're in the water. There have been a half dozen verified encounters in which sharks bit swimmers or surfers like Max Haynes, who said a shark bit him on the foot while he was surfing about 20 yards offshore of Fire Island. I just felt it like bone crushing my foot. I knew right away it was a shark bite. I've been like maybe chomped on by little fish, but nothing like that. I knew exactly what it was right away. So I just started paddling in. When I got to the beach, my parents were a little bit down. They saw me and they ran over and everyone held me. Max was lucky. He suffered only a four-inch cut. If there's a bunch of sharks, like little ones out far, like feeding on fish, it's just respect them. I'll stay in my lane and I'll stay in theirs, hopefully. The biggest misconception people have about sharks is that they are here to eat them. And that's just not true. The other misconception is that every shark is Jaws. Dusky sharks, sand tiger sharks, sand bar sharks, um, blue sharks. Uh, I have had my first black tip shark, which is very exciting for me this year. Uh, We've had a couple of spinner sharks. For Greg Metzger, shark encounters are intentional. My name's Greg. I have no idea what I'm doing, so good luck. It turns out he knows exactly what he's doing. We have 25 individual sharks that we have to catch and tag, representing three different species. So we have to tag 25 dusky sharks, 25 sand tiger sharks, and 25 sand bar sharks. Metzger is a high school science teacher and chief field coordinator of the South Fork Natural History Museum's Shark Research and Education Program. He invited us along. south of Fire Island Inlet. We're going to try to target sand bars today. Uh, we'll be looking for Bunker on the way out. Uh, bunker Atlantic Menhaden is pretty much the primary food source for a lot of the sharks that are here in our waters right now, which is why the sharks are in our waters. There's a lot of food out there. It's easy for them to get it. Sharks do not want to eat us. They're chasing bunker fish near the beaches. Swimmers may be interacting with sharks while they're feeding, and the bites are likely mistakes. How far away from shore? Um, we are closer than you'd probably expect. Yeah. Is that okay that the shark is that close? Yeah, they're just doing their thing. They're trying to, he's right in the middle of a giant school of food, so he's, he's getting his breakfast. It is a perfect day on the water. Sunshine, a cloud or two to keep the sky interesting, and crystal clear water. And it takes almost no time to spot a shark. So, 
Uh, I don't think this is going to take very long. So what we want to do, who, uh, who wants to be our first angler? With us is Brad Peterson, a professor at Stony Brook University who is studying the effects of offshore wind farms on the shark population. The difficult part is getting a shark to the boat. All the investment is this, what we're doing. And once we get it to the boat, then you want to kind of get as much as you can get from the, from the animal as possible. So for each shark, he'll take a fin clip, muscle biopsy, and blood. The fin clip we took for looking at population genetics. So we kind of see how this population compares to other populations up and down the coast. Then the muscle biopsy is we used uh, for stable isotopes. We'll look at uh, carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur, which lets you discriminate to the different trophic levels and where they're feeding. Blood, we look at stress levels and hormones within the... So this is kind of a short term. You can also use blood to look at, at um, uh, uh, diet as well, because it's kind of like a short term. So your muscle is like what they've had in the last month or so. Blood would be like what they've had in the last day or so. But we're using it uh, really for stress hormones. We'll find out how much he likes you. Because he's going to be your wingman. To watch right. and help our two students, okay. Alex so and Eileen, here. who so won the chance to go shark tagging by picking up deflated balloons from the beach. Whoever picks up the most balloons off the beach gets to come out here and help them tag sharks. Are there a lot of balloons on the beach? Yes. I work at Jones, Stone Beach State Park, so on my lunch break I would go out and pick them up. And in one month I picked up over a thousand balloons. And there were some that I've missed. So this is the top. So there's a, there's a handle here in case someone's going to hold on to you, right? <laughs> Eileen is our first angler. Right in there. How big so is this thing going to be? <laughs> well, I, I've seen I've seen them uh, a couple hundred pound thresher shark will keep you busy so. all day. <laughs> yeah, do you have a plan if you catch a shark? That's a tough question. <laughs> Pray. Okay. I think you're ready to rock and roll. Sitting on the stern of a boat bobbing in the middle of the water, you realize there is a lot we don't know about the ocean and about sharks, which is why scientists like Greg and Brad want to track them, tag them, and study them. We do know the entire ecosystem out here is stressed because of climate change. Northwest Atlantic is one of the fastest warming spots on Earth. These sharks are here in our waters. We have seven-plus species that we commonly encounter in literally the same spots. So how are these animals partitioning that habitat? What, What is the habitat that they like? Upper temperatures, lower temperatures? How are they utilizing Long Island waters while they're here? Another thing that I think is really exciting about the SOFO data and what they'll be able to address, you know, Long Island is really kind of a biogeographic barrier. You know, there's, there's things that are moving up from the south and things that are here that are moving away. And having... Being able to to quantify catch per unit effort, you know, how much effort they've been putting in over the years and then seeing different things like spinner sharks and, and black tip sharks, you know, that are commonly more southerly things, you know, but here, uh, it's interesting to be able to assess kind of how perhaps those populations are redistributing themselves as the water warms up. The more researchers understand, the more they can forecast shark behavior on a warming planet. First, though, we have to catch them. When it takes the bait, the line will just start going. And almost immediately. Okay, go ahead and put your hand out of that. Don't do anything yet. Don't do anything yet. Get that other clip. Push this up. And I just want you to start reeling. Reel, 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 reel. A dusky shark moves into view and splashes near the boat. How'd it feel? Small. I want it so big it knocks me in the water. 
That's not good. <laughs> this little guy does not need a tag, but Greg Metzger still wants information. Since very little is really known about sharks, even just basic blood cell shapes and numbers, uh, basic blood chemistry. You know, these things aren't really that well known and understood, so every chance we have to contribute to that, um, you know, we're able to do that. Okay, girth is 38 centimeters. Measurements are taken. We're now going to be taking a cloacal swab. We're trying to get uh, DNA from the food so we can look at kind of their diet. Then the swabbing, scooping, and clipping. Now we take a muscle biopsy. So we're looking at, we use the muscles to look at stable isotopes. Again, it's a way of looking at their diet, different trophic levels. And if you rub them from head to tail, they'll be super smooth and slimy. Oh, wow. And then go the other way, quite different. Oh, interesting. It's like the coarsest sandpaper. Rub against it unknowingly in the water, and Brad Peterson says it might feel like a bite. The obsession with sharks, I, I think that for me, it is, uh, they're apex predators, right? They're at the top of the, of the food chain, so they're the ones that kind of distinguish what a habitat would look like if it's in good shape. So the big predators are the ones that uh, I think tell the story. They're there and healthy. That yep. means the ecosystem is healthy. Yep, yep, right, right. So for me personally, my interest in them is that uh, here on Long Island, um, there there are numerous sharks and their populations, um, there are, at least their abundance off the south shore of Long Island, um, is relatively good. And so I'm interested to find out how they are kind of then having their impact on the rest of everything that's around Long Island. That includes humans. When you actually look at the attacks, right, um, no one's lost any appendages, no one's died. You know, we're talking about bites on, on feet, you know, and, and on legs. And, and my suspicion is these guys were in a bunker school. Bunker were around. They were coming around. They, you know, these sharks are going for for their, their food. They realize that they're on the wrong thing and, you know, they move on to what they want. So they're not an animal to be feared. They're not an animal to be feared. Oh, he's right on it. Open, 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 open. Open, he grabbed it. Open. Nice. Got him? Yeah, 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 yeah. You got him, you got him, you got him. Shark, shark. Okay. That's all right. He's off. When we do hook another one, the process repeats. Measurements first, taken while leaning over the side of the boat. From the tip of the tail down to where the tape measure, that's total length. Total length, 109 centimeters. Science. Good day. This is this is real shark science. This is, you know, the stuff that you see on Shark Week. That's not the sensationalized, you know, craze like the actual science that's going on. They, there's nothing they're doing. We're not. You know, the analysis may vary, but as far as the field component, this is this is what it is. It's the message. I mean, is this an animal to be feared, to be revered? The overall takeaway is the fact that we have so many of these sharks in our waters right now is uh, a sign that we're moving the ocean back to what Mother Nature intended it to be. So all of the things that we saw today are a result of positive conservation efforts and... Um, you know, restoring Mother Nature back to what it's supposed to be. So more sharks signal a healthy ocean. Metzger told us it may require different behavior from humans. We definitely need to make sure that we're giving uh, appropriate public education to the general public to interact with a more conserved ocean. So things like not swimming in the mornings, not swimming in the evenings, because this is when sharks typically take advantage of the lower light 
and it's easier for them to catch their prey. You certainly see how many sharks there are in and around the edges of bunker schools. So if you are in the water and a bunker school is approaching or you see a lot of bird activity, if you see a lot of whales and dolphins, they're all here feeding on these bunker. And so it's easy to see whales and dolphins because they have to come up to breathe, but it's harder to see the sharks. But you can see that pretty much every bunker school we saw out there had at least one, if not multiple, sharks on it. So just educating the public on how to better interact with a more conserved in ocean is, is really what what needs to be done. You're listening to Impact Climate and Sustainability from ABC News Radio. Ginger Z has been with ABC News for 10 years and has been chief meteorologist for us for the past eight. In that time, she has traveled the world covering not only severe weather, but also tracking climate change. Another fight in the climate crisis. What looks behind me like a villain's lair, maybe in a Bond film, is actually vacuuming the sky of our problematic CO2. Feel the power of the wind. The energy that is being harnessed is something we've done from thousands of years, but not quite like we are today. Over the years, Ginger has fielded thousands of questions about climate change, how we got to this point, and what we can do about it now. She sat down with ABC's Sherry Preston to talk about our warming planet. When it comes to climate change, what do you think are still the biggest myths that Americans and really anybody who is a citizen of the world believes? And what do they think is is true that's not true? What's interesting is the use of the word myth and belief. So myth says that you believe one thing or another and and falsely so, right? That's what myth is. Uh, Climate change is not a belief system. It is just science. And now proven science to the point that 99.9% of scientists agree that our warming of the planet right now has been amplified. Yes, it's natural to a certain degree, but we have amplified it because of our human greenhouse gas emissions. It's a really simple one-to-one. The myth that surrounds it most is that The world has always changed. How are we to say that we made such an impact? We know we have because we're able to go tens of thousands of years, certainly thousands of years, into paleoclimatology. And we're able to see in the, yeah, it was hotter. We know there there were palm trees in the Arctic. We have all that information. We're not saying that didn't happen before. The difference is, is that that happened with a change to Earth's orbit, a volcano. There were some other proximity to the sun or solar eruption that forced those rapid warmings. But never in the history that we can see of our planet have we seen this rapid warming without one of those other things. The only thing that has changed is us, the Industrial Revolution, and our output of greenhouse gas emissions. And by saying it, this is caused by climate change, mm. that actually is is something that's really powerful when people hear and see that. And I think the really... It, important part is to use the words, not that it's necessarily caused, and this is where they can get very into the nuance and people will be like, uh, 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 because naturally we would have been in a drought in the desert Southwest, which is true. We have amplified and made more rapid the change. So this would have naturally been a time where we would see the desert Southwest go into one of their regular droughts. The latest science I just reported on, seven years would have been the drought in the Southwest. We're now in a 22-year mega drought. So that's the difference, is we are making it worse faster. What do you say to people who live in places like Minnesota, where it gets very, very cold (laughs) in the winter, and every winter they say, 
this is not climate change because it's freezing here. Those are my favorite stories. <laughs> I actually have a whole folder and canned responses because I get it every single winter. Uh, <laughs> you have to have extremes to come up with an average. Uh, the, the issue is, is our average is warming. So our average over time is warming rapidly. So yes, you will still have cold. In fact, you may even have colder. And Texas will have the coldest they have in our recorded history. That doesn't mean that overall the globe isn't warming. What do you think is the biggest threat to not just the United States, but to the world right now? Water. Water and fresh water and the ability to get to water for humans and what that means for agriculture and therefore food. So it, water is the base of life. It is, it's also, I say water because it also covers me on sea level rise, which has taken away groundwater from a place like the Maldives, which I visited last year. It is an urgent issue. According to NASA, if we continue with this current rate of global warming, they will have 80% of their islands uninhabitable in the next 30 years. And I'm not talking about the Maldives you see on Instagram when people go there to the nice islands, because there are a lot of islands and most of them are not well. It's not just that they're eroding rapidly and that the beaches aren't there and that those left, the beaches that are left are full of trash. And I mean, pounds of trash. It's that that salt water in such a rapid form has taken over these islands so that their groundwater that they did have has been polluted. Now they are fully salt water underground. So they don't have a way unless the rain falls to get water. These people who have lived there for thousands and thousands of years and never have left the islands have to leave these islands. And we are in the era of true climate refugee. You talk about the Maldives. You have gone all over the world in your mm -hmm. study of what's going on mm -hmm. with climate change. Tell us about some of the things that you're seeing that are most alarming to you and some of the things that you're most encouraged by. Yeah, I'm always encouraged. And I think that's the other thing is maybe it's because I do understand the science and I understand the physics of how simple it is to stop. It's not we're not past the point of stopping this. We can make rapid change still. We have a shot. We can't stop what we've already warmed, but we can curb what future warming looks like. And we just have to make different choices. So I think about it like that. But I, I would say there are a couple of times, uh, one being the bushfires in Australia. We got in a vehicle and drove seven hours straight not seeing an end to the charring. I've done a lot of wildfire coverage. I've never seen That would be like driving almost the coast of California all the way down to the water. Everything's burned. People were dead. People were hurt. It was just, I saw so many dead kangaroos. And I think it just, you know, that's what that story got out very well was the impact to wildlife and biodiversity and what that meant. And so that one, and then when I was in central Mexico, we were in this church that had, that had been flooded. The, the, the town had been flooded to basically connect two bodies of water between two other towns. For 50 years, there was just water. Big reservoir, 60, 70, 80 feet deep. In the last six years, during their dry seasons, this church that was an 18th century church, beautiful, started to emerge again. This reservoir dried up 100% where people could walk through the church. And I think it was the church, maybe the spirituality of, and the history a lot of compounding factors, but it really hit me how big of a deal this was, that 70 feet of water was here six years ago, and now it's not. And then I can talk about solutions and the excitement I have, you know, for what's, what's to come. When I think about the domestic possibilities here with mining, which sounds not at all like someone who would be environmental. <laughs> yeah, explain that. Explain that. Let's go into that. Yeah. So, we have an electric vehicle for our family. And as we were thinking about purchasing it, I thought, well, where where does the lithium come from? And then to come to find out, it's 
probably not America because we make up such a tiny percentage of the lithium production in the world. And I thought, well, if EVs are the answer. Well, I got to do this story. And nobody had done this on television. And, and there's one commercially operating lithium mine in the United States, in Nevada. So I went, I visited, I learned a ton about it, felt a lot better about what I was sitting on because at least I knew the impact that I was having. And then I thought, well, that's just one of the things in this battery. And then we started to look into cobalt, which has a, a storied history. And everyone kind of probably has seen the pictures from the DRC where more than 60% of the cobalt that's used in our phones is it's not just EVs. It's everything we use. We're already doing it. We already are part of the dirty problem, big time, with what electrifying America or electrifying the world can be done right or it can be done wrong. So I just got back from Idaho where we were in the first cobalt mine in the last 30 years in the United States. We haven't done it for a long time because we used to not do it so well, and it used to kill a lot of fish and hurt a lot of indigenous people, and we did not make great choices, which is probably no surprise. We're doing it right now. I went there fully ready to be like, uh-uh-uh, <laughs> what about that pond? Over no, oh, you guys thought of that already? Okay, cool. I mean, these companies, you can't do it wrong here. You can't any longer. The, the, the regulations that are in place in the United States, both in a social manner but and, and, and also in a environmental manner, are some of the highest standards in the world. But I would say that the, the future of where we go with energy has to be done to our best of our abilities right now. I'm sure in 100 years, people will be like, I cannot believe they went back to cobalt mining. Oh, my God. But also, iron phosphate's an op option. There are battery opportunities. It's just that it's the lesser of the evils right now. And that brings me to one of the most exciting topics that I've been looking into. And I would say the most debated, there are several companies, but one big one that is doing something called deep sea mining. In the CCZ, which is a zone kind of between Hawaii and California, 15,000 feet down, there are billions of these nodules. They look like little potatoes. Inside those potatoes, cobalt, nickel, manganese, and copper. Four of the most important critical minerals that we've been mining the world up for. And these companies are claiming that there's enough there that they wouldn't even have to take that many and they could make the entire fleet of America EV. Oh, wow. And so, well, okay. So yeah. how are people, I mean, how are people dealing with the explosion in their heads of that? <laughs> yes. Like, how can we do that? There's an international seabed authority. And here's the good part. Here's where we've come to in history is that there is already a regulating process. Nobody's just clamp it, you know, digging for oil or <laughs> they're not making their own claim and going out there and grabbing a bunch of potatoes from 15,000 feet down. There are some rules that are in place already. And they haven't started commercially because a lot of people love the ocean and they want to make good choices. The world is more aware. Yes, we want our stuff, but can we do it and do it with less impact? Is the potato in the ocean our magic bullet? Is that the gift from God? Or like my husband said, have whales been eating those for thousands of years and we're going to kill all the whales? <laughs> Listen, meteorologist Ginger Z, you explain <laughs> things really, really well Thank to you. the common person, which I like when it comes to you know, climate change and, and all of this, I feel like I'm like the normal person who kind of is like, listen, I recycle, I, I do this stuff, but the big picture stuff, yeah. you explain it really, really well. Thank you. And you know what? I, I can tell you with great confirmation that the whales do not eat those nodules. We have confirmed that. <sighs> and my husband was really happy to hear that too. Okay, great. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Ginger Z, our chief meteorologist here at ABC News. Thank you. Of course. You've heard it said that everything is bigger in Texas. 
While the rest of the country rolls its eyes at that bit of braggadocio, statistics suggest it may be true. The Lone Star State's gross domestic product gets right up there with Canada, Italy, and Brazil, and its population grows by a 1,000 people every day. But you won't hear Texans boasting about one of the state's outsized characteristics, its environmental problems. ABC's Jim Ryan tells us how the only state that was once a nation is dealing with these existential threats. In early February 2021, winter storm Uri blasted into Texas, pushing temperatures to as low as 6 degrees and freezing the water inside oil and gas wells, forcing them to be shut down. It became very clear very quickly that... This is going to be a very challenging time for Texas. Governor Greg Abbott would eventually declare a state of emergency for all 254 of Texas counties. Soon, the lights and the heat went out for millions of homes and businesses. There are so many of us, and I can't stress that, children, elderly, pets, they're, you know, we're out of our homes. We have predominantly an older neighborhood with a bunch of older families in here, so it's tough on them to go find, you know, to be lucky enough to find somewhere to go. We were without power for about 24 hours. Then sometime last night it came back on again, and then about an hour ago it shut off again. Governor Abbott placed blame for the sweeping power outages on the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, the nonprofit body that oversees the Texas power grid. He called on the Texas legislature to weatherize the state's electrical infrastructure against future weather events like the deep freeze of 2021. State officials have determined that 246 people died for reasons related to the freeze and resulting power outages. Skip ahead 18 months in the state that shivered under a sheet of ice and snow was baking beneath a relentless sun. Now, instead of furnaces, millions were cranking up the air conditioning and stressing the power grid again. David Kinchin of Energy Ogre urged Texans to turn down the thermostat and shut off unnecessary devices during those critical afternoon hours. If you said something like that maybe only saves you four or five bucks a year on, on your electricity, well, that's four or five bucks you've saved, but it might also be you have six devices that you can unplug. Even as Texas' electrical infrastructure was brushing up against its absolute capacity, we are enduring a long, hot, dry summer. The state's water supply was being tested by a historic drought. Wayne Larson is with the North Texas Water Authority, which quenches the thirst of two million homes and businesses in 10 fast-growing counties. We're experiencing a stress on our system because of peak demands with peak weather conditions. At the Tarrant Regional Water District, which serves another two million customers, conservation manager Dustin Compton says the problem is that... Our water supplies come from surface water lakes, and those are limited. If it's not raining, our... Our, our supplies are going down. But there's another component unrelated to the physical environment that's having a deep impact on Texas' ability to keep the lights on. It's an economic environment that continues to attract corporate and individual relocations. Texas grew from 25.1 million people at the census in 2010 to 29.9 million in 2022, a net increase of 4.8 million. Most of that growth came not from births, but from people moving in. And Dustin Compton of the Tarrant Regional Water District says all those new Texans did not bring their own electricity or water with them. Newcomers coming to this area uh, get to know 
where your water comes from and understand that this climate and soils are a little bit different than maybe where you originally are from. But it isn't just newly arrived people putting stress on Texas water and electricity systems. 62 companies moved their headquarters to the Lone Star State in 2021, according to Y Texas, which works to promote corporate relocations. Among those businesses are the crypto miners. This building is 1,050 feet long and 60 feet wide. You don't see this in Bitcoin mining. Chad Harris is CEO of Riot Blockchain, which runs a crypto mine in Rockdale near Austin. It's essentially a warehouse filled with computer CPUs. There's about 100,000 machines here currently. All of them working on the complicated mathematical equations that generate Bitcoin. So one single machine after power cost earns about 30 to 31 dollars a day. Texas, the nation's biggest producer of cotton, cattle, and oil, is adding cryptocurrency to its portfolio of exports, says Lee Bratcher, founder of the Texas Blockchain Council. There's so much tech talent in Austin. Several of the largest Bitcoin mining companies in the world are headquartering themselves in Austin. They're drawn here by Texas' business-friendly climate, low-cost energy, and complete lack of regulation of the crypto industry. By 2023, miners will consume 5 to 6 gigawatts of electricity, enough to power 1.2 million homes and creating another stress on the power grid. But Bratcher insists that... Bitcoin miners can turn off within five seconds. So they actually provide grid resiliency by increasing baseload demand. What's more, when those massive warehouses shut down for any reason, they sell their unused electricity back to the grid and make a profit. But because Bitcoin miners are not regulated... Won't they just keep sucking up power and turning up Bitcoin, even in a crisis? Chad Harris of Riot Blockchain says that's possible. You're going to have gold standard, and we believe we're it. And then you're going to have people that might not behave the same way. The result of all that crypto mining, corporate relocations, homes and businesses running their furnaces and AC units, is that Texas consumes twice as much electricity as Florida, the number two consumer. And it's supplied by massive power plants, 65% of which run on fossil fuels, either natural gas or coal. Factor in the 22 million cars and trucks registered in Texas, and the impact can be measured 10 miles above the West Texas desert in the ozone layer. Texas Tech professor Catherine Hayhoe. The side effect is that when you burn coal and gas and oil, it produces carbon dioxide. She says the climate is changing as a result. But some scientists disagree. Alabama state climatologist John Christie says all of the conditions attributed to global warming, the rising sea levels and melting glaciers, for example, are just part of the Earth's natural cycle. Has the ice melted there before? And the answer is absolutely yes. Has sea level risen before? The answer is absolutely yes. The real weather data indicate is just not much of an effect at all. Dr. Hayhoe says that's true, except that... As far back as we can go in history, like I'm talking millions of years, we have no record of this much carbon going into the atmosphere this fast. And Andrew Dressler, climatologist at Texas A&M University, says the long-term effect on Texas weather pattern will be noticeable. You'll still have average years, you'll still have cool years, but when you have a hot year, it's going to be worse. In other words, climate change is pumping atmospheric steroids into the state's droughts, heat waves, and cold snaps. It's clear that something will have to change if Texas hopes to keep up. But if your plan for powering the state's future includes the term climate change, don't bother bringing it up at the state capitol. The politics of this, if you're a Republican, are very tricky. Dr. Jim Henson heads the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas. He polled the state's voters asking, is climate change happening? 
88% of Democrats say it is 30% of Republicans. Because the oil and gas industry is a major political force behind Governor Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and the GOP majority in both houses of the state legislature, Henson says talk of alternative energy just doesn't happen in Austin. When everybody adopts a norm that says, you know, we can't really talk about climate change directly or explicitly, that's going to affect the policy discussion. Silence becomes the default option in a polarized environment like this. Despite legislative reluctance to poke the bear that is big oil, things are changing. For all its variety of climate, people, and businesses, Texas is also a diverse energy incubator. The great oil boom that opened the 20th century has been followed by a search for new, renewable sources of energy. When Texas hit a new single-day record for energy consumption in July, wind and solar power combined to provide 25% of the energy on the grid according to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. The Solar Energy Industries Association says the state ranks second nationally in terms of installed solar power at 13,947 megawatts. With 150 wind farms generating over 30 gigawatts of electricity, only four countries have more wind power than Texas. The Gulf of Mexico's first offshore wind farms will be developed off the coast of Texas and Louisiana in the coming years. It's long past time that we got started, uh, you know, in the offshore wind anywhere in the United States. Rice University's energy fellow Jim Crane says the Gulf wind farm will supplement the power pumped out by the giant turbines in West Texas. From what I understand about the you know, offshore wind is it, it's better in late afternoons and high demand periods when our, our wind in West Texas doesn't blow so well. <laughs> By the year 2030, giant windmills off Galveston Island may be powering as many as 3 million homes. What's left unsolved is the vicious cycle that simultaneously energizes the state's economy and threatens its healthy existence. More people means more energy demand. More energy production means a greater impact on the environment, resulting in hotter summers, colder winters, and more powerful hurricanes. Jim Ryan, ABC News, Dallas. Impact, Climate and Sustainability from ABC News Radio. Once again, here's correspondent Aaron Katursky. The clean energy movement has been building for decades, but in recent years, the jobs have followed. Workers are finding many of the skills once used in traditional manufacturing, construction, and energy sectors are just what renewable companies are looking for. ABC's Michelle Franzen tells us for some communities, it is offering a renewed sense of purpose. Just outside Pittsburgh, steel is once again taking shape at the old Bethlehem Steel Mill. The once abandoned plant is now home to BCI Steel and a hub for workers like Michelle Barsage. It's amazing uh, to see, you know, I mean, of course, Steel City um, and knowing, you know, an old factory like the Bethlehem Steel and, you know, where it had maybe ended and now coming back and opening it up and, and having this happen here to me is awesome now using her manufacturing skills to make the metal solar trackers and other renewable energy components. We have these shipments of coils that come in, which is, you know, um, our metal. The single mom has deep roots in Leedsdale, a historic mill town along the Ohio River. She was raised by her grandparents. To me, it's amazing because I feel like my grandfather, when I was little, did the same thing 
for our family that now I'm able to do for mine. BCI Steel partnered with Next Tracker to revive the plant, now a flagship for its clean energy production. Next Tracker President Howard Winger says the facility was once used to make landing craft during World War II and now serves as a functional bridge for the next phase of work. So the steel that used to go into armaments for fighting a, a, a war overseas is now going to go into um, clean energy technologies, which is fighting a war for energy independence and lower cost energy and clean energy. Clean energy jobs were already trending in the U.S., but with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, Winger says it's created a tipping point for businesses and the labor market. We've, uh, just in the past six months, we've started up three new manufacturing facilities as an example. And these are in, uh, you know, towns like Sinton, Texas, and in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. And these uh, new manufacturing lines for our products are already creating new jobs in these towns. And we're just one company. Industry leaders say the IRA funding, grants, and tax credits will accelerate growth in the next decade. Heather Zeichel is CEO of American Clean Power Association, a major trade group for renewable energy companies. Our analysis shows that the IRA legislation alone will help create 550,000 new clean energy jobs. That's more than doubling the current clean energy workforce of almost 445,000 workers that we have today. Those jobs will range from executive and support staff and subcontractors all the way to a workforce that is building the solar and wind facilities. Tori Mazzola is head of communications for Orsted, the world's largest offshore wind energy company. We're training workers at the ground level. We're working with the national trade unions at the, at the national level. And then we're also working with companies across the country that are trying to enter this space. So maybe they have experience in the oil and gas industry. Mazzola says workers who once thought their traditional manufacturing and technical skills wouldn't transfer to another job can envision earning a living or making a career. The growth we expect to see is, is beneficial for communities from red states to blue states, coastal communities, landlocked states, innovation hubs like Boston or the West Coast, and, and also the manufacturing centers all across the country. So I think it's poised for takeoff. Kevin Smith agrees. He's CEO of the Americas for Light Source BP and has over four decades of experience in the energy market. We see a lot of people kind of crossing over from, you know, I'm kind of case in point now it was a while ago. Um, but, I, you know, I grew up in the, you know, early in my career on the nuclear side, you know, uh, lots of natural gas uh, projects in the U.S. and worldwide and then move over to renewables. And we're continuing to see that both in the in the you know kind of office-based staff um, as well as on construction sites. In North Carolina, Clinton Surratt is regional operations manager at Engie, a company focused on renewables like solar, wind, and even hydroelectricity. The Air Force veteran says his technical and leadership skills in the military helped him make the transition to renewables. Now he's helping others do the same. It's a good time to you know, we're, we're, we're still early in the adoption curve, so um, still a lot of room to grow. Surratt says there is a sense of excitement being part of the clean energy movement, and he says a greater sense of purpose. I'm not going to work to just get to, to just make money. I'm going to work to 
to to make a difference in 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 a certain way you know whether it's through wind solar or battery storage you know there there is a higher purpose than just making money back in leedsdale pennsylvania Barsage says she's also gaining a new perspective and sense of pride, not just in her work as a steel worker, but in her community. I've been in construction since I was 18, but I've never done anything like this. And working in a factory and producing steel for something that, you know, is is good for our future, like helping the structure for the solar panels and all that stuff. I I just think that it's, you know, it's amazing what we're doing as, you know, a company and, you know, coming together as a, a community and just helping each other out. A whole new industry and outlook on the horizon. Michelle Franzen, ABC News. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We're just weeks into this year, and the news is already nonstop. Two overseas wars, a presidential election already testing the democratic process, a former president in court. It can feel impossible to keep up with, but we can help. I'm Brad Milkey, the host of Start Here, the daily podcast from ABC News. Every morning, my team and I get you caught up on the day's news in a quick, straightforward way that's easy to understand. So kickstart your morning. Start smart with Start Here and ABC News, because staying informed shouldn't feel like a chore. Tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Impact, climate, and sustainability. Here's your host, ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. There may be no profession in the world seeing the environment change quite like wildland firefighters. Fire behavior is changing with rapid speed. The nation's top wildland fire chiefs are saying no matter the root cause, something is suddenly very different, and they're having to adapt, sometimes on the fly. ABC's Alex Stone has covered so many wildfires in his career. And now he's with firefighters in California who are having to innovate in order to stop wildfires before they have a chance to explode. Wildfires have always been a part of life living here in California. Every year we're on the fire line as flames devastate neighborhoods and take lives. This is what firefighters are dealing with right now. It is incredibly hot. It's very smoky. In recent years, though, the wildfires burning here have been different. I've seen it in my 20-some years covering wildfires in California. They've become more explosive and they run like even veteran firefighters have never seen. So the fire is actually growing as we speak. How to battle the new 
normal is a challenge debated among wildland firefighters. Orange County Fire Authority Chief Brian Fennessy. You know, we were calling it, I don't know, five years ago, this new norm, right? Now it's no longer, this is the norm. It's becoming far more challenging for fire departments. His crews are dealing with year-round fires. They move faster than humans can run. Flames racing and wind and extremely dry brush in areas it didn't used to burn. These fires are progressing and growing faster than we can get after them. Doesn't matter how many resources you request after, they're just getting so large that we cannot, it's outpaced us. Fire growth has outpaced you know, the resources that we have available to suppress them. Sonoma County Sheriff's Office, this is a mandatory evacuation order. Leave your homes. More often here, it seems like this now, of people being told to run from their homes. We ran to the house yelling, go, go, we're grabbing my, we left things we had packed up and because we thought, you know, we have minutes. Right. We had 90 seconds. All of this is, is having an impact. Having million acre fires that go all, you know, for two or three months isn't what it used to be. You know, if you were out on a strike team once a year, that was a pretty good thing. Now it's nonstop. It's so that we leave the apparatus up there. So we'll send the five engines up there. We'll send the relief crew up in vans to replace the people and bring the people back and leave the engines up there. The chief says a nonstop extreme fires are impacting the mental health of his firefighters who are away from family and under stress for weeks at a time over and over again. And for those who are back at home having to fill their jobs at firehouses in neighborhoods. Well, if they're not getting home and the folks are, you know, we've deployed aren't getting relief. That puts stress on the family, puts stress on the individual. These jobs are already stressful. They're seeing things that you can't unsee many times. And we're starting to see the effects of that. Um, all agencies, certainly Cal Fire, um, the large metro agencies, we, we've got robust behavioral health programs now. Some of the agencies have clinicians. This has become a real issue. And so Chief Fennessy is leading the charge here in California to get creative with ways to battle the explosive wildfires, at times fighting outdated accepted practices in the fire service to say something needs to change. His secret weapon comes from the military and is in the air. Ken, this is beautiful. Tell me what we're looking at right now. Yeah, so it's a, a CH-47D helicopter, uh, Chinook helicopter out of the uh, U.S. military surplus. So it was operated by the U.S. Army. Uh, no longer needed by them, turned over to uh, civilian operators. So we've modified the aircraft uh, to be the number one firefighting helicopter in the world. It's a fleet of giant Chinook helicopters, one in Orange County, one in LA, and one in Ventura County. Double rotors on the top, they can carry 3,000 gallons of water or fire retardant in one swoop, like no other helicopter in the sky. Meet pilot Ken Schwabenton, he says they have one goal. Getting that water on the fire, quickly it, it can make a huge difference right so the engines it, the engines are engaging you know from the uh, the heel of the fire there if we can get some water out in front of those guys the, the ground firefighters are the ones that really put the fire out we're, we're there to help knock it down it's called the quick reaction force and it's like nothing anywhere else in the u.s it's a small miracle they got it up and running it's a collaboration between a giant electric company and the fire department, the brainchild of Chief Fennessy and some of his counterparts. When Edison approached me, they said, well, we want you to think big. I said, well, how big? You know, because they didn't disclose how much, you know, they, they might have available to support something big. They said, just think big. And so believe it or not, we had like 
six of these identified throughout to the tune of like 50, 60 million or something. And so that was the Not that big. <laughs> that was the first pitch. And that's what they said is like, well, that was a little bigger than we had expected. It's like, well, then how big? Well, can maybe three of those? Like, okay. The electric company that provides power to a big swath of the state, Southern California Edison, said it would spend $18 million a year to finance a quick reaction force if it could make a difference in putting out fires before they explode. Southern California Edison President and CEO Stephen Powell. Evolving climate conditions um, are driving this year-round concern with wildfires. When the winds have blown here in California, some of the state's biggest wildfires have been linked back to power lines going down. And while companies like Southern California Edison are employing technologies to prevent that from happening, the goal of the money is to help firefighters stop wildfires sooner. Now with about a quarter of SCE's uh, service territory located in high fire areas, um, it's one of our top priorities to protect the public, especially from potential ignitions from our equipment. We need resources, you know, especially when the wind blows. We need them now. We, we don't need them within the next 24 hours. If we don't have these resources within the first hour or two, We've literally seen over the years fires go to the ocean. That $18 million from Southern California Edison is now going to fund three Chinooks plus support teams that can bring in mobile swimming pool-like setups for the choppers to suck up water or retardant and fuel trucks to a fire area. It is a unique partnership. Co-pilot Ed Rivnack. The biggest change I've seen over the last 20 years is the summer fire season. Uh, the seasons are longer, they're drier, the fuels are more stressed. And so we have to be more aggressive now on fighting fire than we did 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you had time. You had time to see what was going on, but now the fuels are so dry and so stressed. If you don't get on it immediately, it's going to run away from you. Rivnak was a firefighter on the ground until recently. Now he's in the cockpit flying above. When a wildfire report comes in, immediately the quick reaction force is activated. Their alarms go off, they get in the chopper and get it running. They begin to respond to get there unless ground units say they're not needed. It's all about putting out fires before they're big enough to be on the news. We can do water or retardant. We have the uh, capability to fill the aircraft from the ground or uh, we can hover. Uh, we have a snorkel that comes out underneath the aircraft, it's a retractable snorkel. Uh, when it's not in uh, use for filling the tank, it is retracted up inside the aircraft, giving us no limitations uh, on uh, airspeed or maneuver uh, capability. The helicopters are owned and operated by a big aerial firefighting company called Colson Aviation. The choppers have been repainted from their old military days with the fire department name on them and on the front, the large logo of Southern California Edison. When we can get out there and, and, and put that water down and uh, stop the fire, it's a, it's a good feeling. Yep. If we can go out there and knock the thing down in 15, 20 minutes and be back here for lunch, it's, it's the best feeling in the world. The difference Ken and Ed are making, Chief Fennessy says, is incredible. That they got creative and they're fighting back against the new ways fires burn here. Oh, it's huge. I mean, we're dropping with our helicopters, our agency helicopters, about 350 gallons. The Chinook is dropping up to 3,000 gallons. That's a, a, a pretty significant punch. And unlike most fire helicopters, a quick reaction force Chinooks fly at night. The pilots wearing night vision goggles. That means when fires often grow unchecked at night, these choppers are still at work and in the fight. Well, probably, you know, the, the best thing about this program is getting to the, getting on a big helicopter on the fire quickly. With a helicopter like this, we carry so much water, we can get out there and we can knock the thing down in a short period of time. And having a, these big aircraft to do that 
is something that hasn't been available to the fire services before. So here in this response area, when they get a call for a brush fire, we're getting paged out. We're heading out to the aircraft. We've got those positions uh, plotted in. It's all about speed and force, and it's money coming from an unlikely source allowing it to happen. For now, part of the year in the future, they may need it year-round. And the chief says more areas of the country need to look at what Southern California is doing and find ways to fight back against a changing environment. We as the fire service that sometimes are a little slow to evolve, I think need to evolve faster. We're seeing a lot of tech companies come our way with a lot of really interesting ideas, some of them very good. And, um, you know, I think we're, we don't adopt as fast as I think we, we need to. I'm Alex Stone, ABC News in Orange County, California. We want to bring you now a collaboration between ABC News and the award-winning news outlet Inside Climate News. ABC News climate producer Tracy Wolf and ICN's clean energy reporter Dan Guerino take us now to rural Ohio, where the proliferation of solar energy, which seems so simple, has actually prompted heated debates in small towns and even threatened to tear a community apart. Okay, so our turn is right here. As you drive down Yankee Town Pike, a two-lane country road north of Williamsport, Ohio, you see a white house with green shutters. Hi. <laughs> this is the home of a 68-year-old retired farmer. We moved in this house in 1984. It belonged to my great, great grandfather built it. Mark shines an upstanding and affable guy. And for a person whose father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were all farmers, Farming is his life. But for a lot of people in Pickaway County these days, Mark isn't a sympathetic retired farmer. He's the enemy. He's the reason their community is changing for the worse. There's already hard feelings. It was all about money. Nobody's happy about it. But what was it that made so many people turn against Mark? Well, he and his family made the daring decision to stop farming corn and start harvesting solar. The result? a town feud that at its core is about protecting a sense of home. Mark and his wife, Tony, never got their kids into farming. Instead, one became a lawyer and the other a school teacher. We knew that there wasn't enough here on 300 acres that he could make a comfortable living. And in 2019, something unexpected happened. The Shines were one of dozens of property owners approached by a solar company, which would turn some of their rows and rows of corn and soybeans into a field of solar panels. Critics call the Black Sea. These panels would be part of a 400-megawatt project that would power about 75,000 homes. It would be the second-largest solar farm in the state. It was an interesting proposition because the Shines could earn a ton more money from leasing solar than they could leasing the land to other farmers. Yeah, five times more. This would be like good retirement, like good retirement yeah. cash for you, yeah. essentially. And, uh, you know, they got a lot of people around here that think you ought to rent them the farm. And, uh, you know, you're talking maybe $200 an acre versus the solar money, which is, you know, $1,000 an acre starting out. Wow, so it's significant. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I'll be paying twice as much taxes here in three to five years if they get them hooked up. Right. But... I can handle it. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. It's obvious why solar developers salivate when they see this part of the country. It's incredibly flat. There's definitely cultivated farmland on one side, transmission lines up and down the road here. And at a time when the United States is looking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase energy production, 
Experts say we need places like Williamsport to generate clean energy closer to home. And it's right next to a transmission line that can deliver power into a big regional grid. A giant regional grid that goes all the way to Maryland and New Jersey. This is just prime land. It's it's like an oil patch for solar. <laughs> so when Mark and Tony Shine signed their 20-year solar lease, what did they expect? Well, they kind of expected that developers would build a big project, the farmers in the community would make a lot of money, and everyone would be happy, right? No. <laughs> this private, economic decision they made about what to do with their own land made their neighbors and friends angry. Really angry. And they think I'm wrong, so mm. I don't have very, very many neighbors talk to me anymore. Things have gotten so bad that Tony won't even bring it up with people she's known for decades. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, and I'm not going to discuss it with somebody that's very negative, So, because I, I don't want to lose friends. Yeah. And there's one family in particular the Shines fell out with, the Barneses. It's awkward. Um, of course, we're all in church together, and uh, uh, Mark and Tony still come. It's, it's um, an awkward situation. Carla Barnes is a retired high school math teacher. She and her husband, Tom, had been friends and longtime neighbors of the Shines. Both families are pillars of the community, but now solar is testing that bond. To the Barneses, their problem with solar is a matter of principle. They worry that if more and more neighbors sign solar leases, rural Williamsport will go from American Gothic to something unrecognizable. This is Tom Barnes, Carla's husband. You'll ruin the community as far as a farming community. It'll just be like an industrial thing that'll never go back to farming, so they can forget about that. There's a livelihood attached to it all, too. Over the past six or so decades, the Barneses have amassed 2,600 acres of farmland, all co-owned by family members. The way they see it, they can't afford to let farming disappear here. I understand that you don't want solar here. How do you feel about solar energy in general? Oh, great. Put it, put it on the hills of southern Ohio. That's where they got to put them, where you don't farm them. Also, over the years, the family has done the painstaking work of laying down hundreds of acres of drainage tile to help divert excess water from the fields. And they worry solar will put that whole system in jeopardy. They fear that solar, even if it's on neighboring properties, will damage tile that will affect their property because the drainage systems are interconnected. The Barnes's son, Justin, is a leader in the campaign against solar in Pickaway County. Okay, so speaking locally, it would devalue and depress the area. Justin's a farmer just like his father, but he also has a side business renovating old barns into Instagram-worthy luxury vacation rentals, which are run by his wife, Adrian. So they have a stake in property values around here. Also, Adrian says solar is an eyesore, and she worries it'll fundamentally change something about the heart of this place. People settled here, chose to build their homes here, uh, love living in this community. And, I mean, we've heard from quite a few people that have said, if it goes in, I'm, I'm selling and moving. Um, and good people, good friends. Um, I don't know, it just, it scares me to think of, of, of what would happen. Justin and Adrian helped organize the anti-solar effort, starting with phone calls and meetings between neighbors. Now it's a full-blown campaign that you can see around town. There are signs all over the place that read, no industrial solar plants on farmland. They're everywhere, like political signs at the height of election season. 
And it definitely looks and feels like Justin and Adrian have a lot of the community's support. Well, I think it is a strong community. Everyone has the, each other's backs. So, I mean, even if you aren't adjacent, we have people who have friends who are adjacent and they're willing to go out and get signatures on petitions because we feel like we're fighting to keep our community. But the Shines feel targeted by all of this. The signs near their property, an angry voicemail from a neighbor, snarky comments on Facebook, and Mark Shine takes it personally. A week before Christmas, Justin gets this group together and they have a rally and they've been putting up roadsides and articles in the paper and, you know, just like we were the devils of the earth. And it's just very disrespectful for a sign like that in front of my mailbox. I'm Sarah Mills. Sarah Mills is a researcher at the University of Michigan at the Graham Sustainability Institute. My work is on the impacts that renewable energy has on rural communities. And Sarah grew up on a farm in maybe Michigan, so she's got credibility with rural audiences. So we asked her to respond to some of the concerns brought up by the Barneses and others in the area. First, to the claim that solar makes property values drop as much as 60%. Wow, that is much more than I have heard or would have expected. There was a study that came out a couple years ago out of some researchers at the University of Rhode Island who looked only at large solar arrays in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, and they found an average decline of about 1.7% kind of within a mile of the solar array. But there's a lot of caveats in there, but I haven't seen anything that would suggest that that you would see declines that large. Next, to the sense that taking agricultural land out of production is just a bad idea. How will it affect local farming economies? You're going to be selling incrementally fewer tractors, and you're going to be processing less grain at the grain elevator. And so I have some research to try to understand, like, how big of an impact is that? And is it offset by the revenues that are going to the landowners who have those solar panels on their property? We don't have an answer because I am doing that research right now, (laughs) like literally this summer. How about Carla and Tom Barnes's worry about damage to drainage tile? I don't know that I've seen a study about long-term impacts A lot of local governments will require that field tile is not damaged and that anything that is damaged is recovered. You know, other than that construction disturbance, there's nothing inherent that would damage the field tile. And the last one, there doesn't seem to be enough sun in Ohio to make it worthwhile to build a solar farm. It is true that it is not as sunny here as parts of the Southwest. I haven't looked at this particular county in Ohio, but in Michigan, I get the DOE solar map. Effectively, a solar panel in most places in Michigan produces about 70% of the amount of power that the same solar panel in Phoenix does. So it's not huge, huge differences. But also, the projects that I've seen, there's not a requirement that the utilities are getting power from renewable energy. The utilities are doing this because they're running the numbers and this is the cost-effective approach. And so they're trying to put solar panels in the places that are going to enable them to kind of get the power that they need. Sarah says there's a reason why it feels like opposition to these projects is heating up at the moment. There's just more projects now. (laughs) So these stories are much more common. 
I think the other thing that's happening is that where projects are proposed now, the places where there is access to transmission and not very many people around, there's already a project there. Mm -hmm. And so these projects are moving closer to people. What's important to keep in mind is these local conflicts have global implications for climate change. Princeton researchers said in a report last year that the country needs to build about 20 times more solar by 2050, just under one scenario, for getting to net zero emissions. To build on that scale, developers and communities need to figure out a way forward. We reached out to EDF, the solar company that's developing the Williamsport project, and they said they wouldn't develop these projects without the support of local communities and landowners. And about drainage issues, the company says it's being careful to avoid damage and will pay to fix damage if it occurs. As climate change alters our shared home, this community also finds itself changed. So where do the families go from here? Carla Barnes can see a way past this conflict. Her husband, Tom, not so much. If we get it stopped, I don't know how that's going to work, but I doubt whether it's going to be repaired totally. <laughs> George and Mark Shine are also pessimistic. I feel like once they're up, people will accept them, but they need to get up. But at this phase, I think that you're going to just, I think people are just going to fight tooth and nail. There's going to be families that will never speak to each other again for the rest of their lives. Do you think it will all have been worth it? I'm fully confident that I made the right decision. It's unclear whether the solar project will be approved. The Ohio Power Siting Board is likely to make a ruling on the application in the next eight months. In the meantime, the fight continues in Williamsport and in communities across the country. You're listening to Impact Climate and Sustainability from ABC News Radio. Once again, here's correspondent Aaron Katursky. Electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids accounted for 4% of new car sales in the U.S. in 2021. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but it is double the prior year. With more EVs on the road, charging is becoming a bigger concern for car buyers because filling your car with electricity is a little different than filling it with gas, as ABC's Mike Dubusky explains. It would appear, based on the headline-grabbing awards... Motor Trend 2022 Truck of the Year the is... Hyundai Ioniq 5, and it is the our The of the Year award goes to... The Rivian R1T. The splashy TV commercials. The EQS RN22 Cadillac Mustang. Everything you want in an electric SUV. And glowing reviews. Is the iPhone of pickup trucks. That the sun is rising on a new era of electric vehicles. Quite possibly the best all-around car ever made. But it's not all clear skies. A recent J.D. Power survey of more than 11,000 EV and plug-in hybrid owners found that the experience at public charging stations in 2022 is actually worse than it was last year, with one out of every five people who visited a station opting to skip charging their vehicle entirely because the chargers were malfunctioning or out of service. I can almost guarantee that anytime you go to a major Tesla charging station, there's probably one unit that is out of order. Vikas Khanna has been a Tesla owner since 2014. He currently owns a Model 3 sedan. He says his experience with the brand's supercharger network has been broadly positive on a tech front. The company scored highest in customer satisfaction in that J.D. Power survey. But even the top of the heap has issues. Part of the time wasn't how much time you needed to spend even at the station actually charging. 
it's waiting in the queue to actually find a charger that was available for you. Hey, hey, hey! And this, the red Model Y back there won't back up. This guy's trying to go through. In recent years, Tesla has expanded its lineup to include lower-cost vehicles like Vikas's Model 3 and the Model Y crossover, joining the higher-end Model S and Model X. You'd not see one or two Model S's that you would see before. You would see a whole host of cars, which included now the Model Y, the Model X, the Model 3. We're having a little supercharger brawl going on here, but the gray car won out. <laughs> we need Jerry Springer for superchargers. And Tesla charging stations were starting to back up. And it's not just Tesla charging stations that are starting to feel a little cramped. Something tells me that this 98 Mustang is not charging at the EV charging station. You see kind of increasingly negative opinions of um, DC fast charging these days because I think the infrastructure really isn't there yet. That's Dave Vanderwerp, testing director at Car and Driver. He says public charging stations are having to contend with a more EV amenable public and as such more EVs are showing up to charge. They're selling more and more EVs so there's more people out there looking for charging so there's lines that start to happen and, and units are down and there's just issues and uh you know, a lot of complaining about that. And let's not forget, once you find an open charger that's working properly, you still have to charge. Depending on what kind of car you have and what type of charger you've wrangled, that could take a while. You go walk around, stretch your legs a little bit, you grab a coffee, maybe you grab lunch, depending on what time of day it is. Um, and then you come back and you realize you still had some time. So it's either checking emails or, you know, thankfully an iPhone or smartphone exists and, you know, just movies or whatever it took to pass the time. All of which is to say that the wild west of public EV charging can be a headache for EV owners. Which is why, according to the energy department, most choose to fill up their cars with electricity at home. And so this concept of being able to plug in at home, never go to a gas station, never having to touch a dirty, uh, ridiculously hot um, you know, gas station handle, I mean, that certainly has its uh, pros. For most people, the car is parked in your driveway in your garage for many, many hours every day overnight, and that, that charging can happen seamlessly at your house. As convenient as that may sound, plugging an electric car into your house isn't quite as simple as plugging in your phone, for instance. For one, that 120-volt outlet in your garage likely isn't powerful enough to fill up an EV quickly. In a EV with even a modest battery pack, the recharge time plugging into a typical outlet is going to be probably on the order of almost a week, right? It's just not feasible. That's why Vikas opted to have a level two charger installed, so he can fill up his Tesla in a couple hours as opposed to a couple days. But while it does provide more juice, it does require more gear. There's a whole ecosystem around electric charging, right? It's not only the vehicle itself and its capacity. There's a physical circuit that's required. There's, you know, working with your local utility in terms of finding maybe the right plan so you don't get gouged by them depending on what time of day you charge. Coordinating with your electric company is only one piece of the home charging puzzle, as it turns out. As Vanderwerp explains, it also requires a fair bit of math. The average household nationwide uses about uh, 30 kilowatt hours of energy per day to run their house. If you add one EV to your household and you use a sort of standard 15,000 miles a year, that's about 40 miles a day. And if your EV gets about three miles per kilowatt hour, you know, it's roughly 15 kilowatt hours per day that you're going to be pumping into your car. So that's 50% more energy use than 
your typical household. It's a situation Vanderwerp and a few of his car and driver colleagues found themselves in during the magazine's recent EV of the Year competition. A lot of us uh, got our next month's electric bill and it doubled or more, right? Because you also hit into higher rate tiers and stuff if, as you use more per month. In short, it's a big bump in your energy consumption at home. Vakas, for his part, says he didn't see a dramatic jump in his electric bill when he started using his home charger. It, it was really minimal. I, I might have seen my bill go up, I don't know, 10, 15 percent if that during the month. But even still, he says he's open to technologies that offset the extra cost of charging an EV at home. That home, by the way, Phoenix, Arizona. It, it gets incredibly hot. And that's important because Vakas isn't the only EV owner feeling the heat. But that may end up being a good thing. I grew up living on a sailboat, and on the sailboat, we had solar panels. And I've been told from a very young age that that's how all our electricity on the boat was being created. And I thought that was the coolest thing as a little kid. That's Antonia Ginsberg-Klempt, a physics and environmental studies student at the New College of Florida. Tony, as she's known, is also the president of Gizmo Power, the company behind a solar-powered EV charging carport. Our system is a frame on wheels that has nine pan nine bifacial panels attached to it, meaning if you look up from underneath, it looks like a stained glass canopy. Those bifacial panels do more than just look good, too. They can actually absorb sunlight that reflects up from underneath them, in addition to capturing the rays from above. What's more, Tony says the Mega is collapsible and can be rolled into a garage if needed. The whole system is on wheels, so you there are detachable um, wheels that can help manipulate the entire frame in and out of garages in case, say, there's a hurricane coming in. All that, according to Tony, equals... Our solar charger system is exactly the same as if you were plugging in your own charger into your wall, into your uh, 220 volt outlet wall. That means charging happens in a couple hours, though Tony says the eventual plan is to incorporate DC fast charging. The Mega is currently in the beta testing phase. There are five of them in operation right now, including one at Tony's house in Florida. If you do want one, though, it'll cost you. Right now, with fluctuating costs with of materials and things, also the prices of solar panels are going up and down, we don't have a solid fixed number that we can give. However, uh, we're ballparking it to being less than 20000 She says her company aims to bring that cost down as production ramps up. Eventually, she says they hope to sell units closer to fourteen dollars or $15,000. Vanderwerp says solar power in general can get costly. If I spend $20,000 to put a solar array in my house, I would have, you know, even if my electricity bill went to zero, it would take me six or seven years to, to pay that back, right, before you start to be, you know, in the black. To him, there's a fair amount of work to be done before solar technology enters the conversation. The majority of households in the country aren't set up to be able to charge an EV at their house. That's the first step. Then we can start to talk about um, solar and other interesting technologies. Vakas says he is interested in solar power, but when it comes to integrating it into his home charging setup... Don't believe so. Right now, I think the, the barrier to entry to even getting solar on a home is difficult. He says there is an application of solar technology that could get him to make the switch, though it's not something that's mounted to a carport or a house. If there was a car out there that was you know, great and had the ability to charge on its own and reduce my reliance upon a charging station, regardless of how that charging station was actually powered, 
I think that would probably be at the top of my list. Welcome to a bright horizon. And he may be in luck. The global premiere of the first production-ready solar car. Earlier this year, an EV startup in the Netherlands unveiled the Lightyear Zero, a slick-looking electric sedan with solar panels integrated into the hood and roof. It's showing that our cars and our technology can really drive everywhere. The company says the sun can add up to 44 miles of range to the Zero, on top of the 388 miles from the battery pack. As for cost, well, Lightyear says they're planning to build less than a thousand units for just over 250,000 bucks a pop. So let's be moved by light and go free. All of which is to say, Aaron, when it comes to charging your EV using the power of the sun, your mileage may vary. Despite all the challenges that come with climate change and its impact on our fragile planet, we are making progress on the path to a greener, more sustainable future. I'm Aaron Katursky. Thanks for listening. If you missed any part of this special program or you'd like to hear it again, you can listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Search for ABC News Radio Specials and click subscribe. Impact Climate and Sustainability was produced by Trevor Hastings. Special thanks to Tara Gimble, Tracy Wolf, Dan Garino, Vika Aronson, and Jen Newman. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio.